Well, I am extremely pleased to welcome here in your behalf today our brother Shai Lin. Uh, Shai is a dear brother in the Lord. Uh, many of you would know of him or know him. Uh, he helped to start Risen Christ Fellowship in Philadelphia along with our dear brother and friend uh, Brian Davis. Uh, Shai is a believer since 1999, has served in church leadership, is a Christian hip-hop recording artist. Uh, he is uh, currently writing a book on the very topic that he's going to preach today, Unity in the Body of Christ. He is also a careful thinker. I've appreciated uh comments and reflections that he has posted in different places, a careful thinker slash theologian uh, who cares about the truth of God's word and its application to our lives. And so it is a great privilege, a great joy, Shai, to have you with us. Please come and may the Lord bless you as you minister the word. Well, grace and peace, saints at Risen Hope, uh, we are uh, really grateful for your partnership in the gospel at Risen Christ uh, Fellowship in Germantown. The saints there greet you, and it is really a privilege and an honor for me to, to bring God's word this morning. Um, the text we're going to be looking at is in the book of Philippians, so if you want to open up to Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading verses 2 and 3. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. It says this, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word and may he bless to our souls the, the reading of his word. Uh, will you join, join me for one more word of prayer? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we praise you because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, we, we thank you for uh, the gospel which unites us. And uh, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone to figure out things on our own, uh, but you have given us uh, words from on high. And so, uh, so as your word is proclaimed this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the unity of your church and the glory of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that we are in extremely divided times, very polarized times times, whether it's ethnicity, 
politics, uh, social issues, justice, whatever the case may be, as we look around our culture, we see division everywhere. And you would think that in a time that we're in with this global pandemic, that that would be something that would bring people together. But in fact, that's been the opposite. Uh, it's been even more divided <laughs> in the pandemic. And the sad part about it is that it's, it's not just in the world that we see this division. So what we would hope for is that uh, the uh, all of the division in, with all of the, the division in the world, that the church would be an oasis that people could come and, and find refuge and, and unity. Uh, but sadly, uh, so often is the case that uh, even within the body of Christ, we see so much division. And, uh, and, and uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of ethnic division, division over race and division concerning politics as we've just gone through a political cycle. And uh, this, this scripture in Philippians chapter 2, I believe, provides some very helpful principles for us as we think through what does it look like for the church to pursue unity in a way that would honor the Lord. Um, and so in Philippians chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we have a situation where two women in the church at Philippi are engaged in some kind of disagreement. And in the midst of his letter to the church as a whole, the Apostle Paul addresses these women directly. And so what can we as the church learn about ethnic unity, the pursuit of ethnic unity from this passage? Well, a few observations about the situation. Observation number one, it was serious. It was serious. We don't know what the specifics are, but whatever it was, it was serious. And we know this because the women are mentioned by name, Iodia and Syntyche. This is one of the few times in his letters that the Apostle Paul actually names names. So whatever was going on between these two women it had made its way all the way from Philippi to Rome, where the Apostle Paul was in jail. Whatever was going on between them was known in the church. And that makes sense. When two people openly disagree with each other, that kind of news tends to spread very quickly. We also know that it was bad, it was serious, because the Apostle Paul requests help from a mediator in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. The words translated true companion, we, we know that Paul is addressing a specific person here because the you in verse 3 is singular. So you know that the problem is serious when two people can't resolve it themselves, but they need the help of an outside party to work through their differences. This was a serious situation. Observation number two. Being Christians did not prevent these women from having conflict. Being Christians did not prevent these women from having conflict. It's clear that these women are Christians. We see that their names are in the book of life at the end of verse 3. And the Apostle Paul tells them to agree in the Lord in verse 1. So these are believers we're talking about. They believe the same gospel. 
They serve the same Lord. They worship the same God, and yet they still have conflict. Knowing this should keep us from automatically excluding believers from the kingdom of God simply because they disagree with us. And this is especially dangerous when it comes to politics and voting. Historically, in America, generally speaking, black Christians and white Christians have voted differently in presidential elections. And so there can be a temptation to think, well, how can they be Christians if they voted for fill-in-the-blank? In fact, some Christian leaders have gone so far as to publicly say things like, if you're a true Christian, you'll vote for fill-in-the-blank. The problem with this is that Whatever political party or candidate you endorse, you're going to be saying that an entire community of believers who vote differently isn't actually saved. Not only is this kind of thinking reductionistic and uncharitable, it's a distortion of the gospel of justification by faith alone. True Christianity is not determined by whether a person votes Democrat or Republican. It's determined by whether or not a person has placed their trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we've learned anything from the Lord Jesus with the Pharisees or Paul with the Judaizers or the Reformers with Rome, it's that we must not add to the gospel. Eodia and Syntyche had a sharp disagreement. Presumably, one was right and the other was wrong, or perhaps they were both wrong. But one or both of them being wrong did not exclude them from the kingdom of God. Observation number three, doing ministry together did not prevent them from having conflict. Doing ministry together did not prevent them from having conflict. We might be tempted to think, well, if they're having trouble agreeing, these must have been immature Christians. Surely these were babes in Christ. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. These women were actually prominent in the church. The Apostle Paul said that they labored side by side with him in the gospel in verse 3. And as an aside, I love how the Apostle Paul affirms these women. He doesn't minimize their work. He doesn't place himself Above them, this would have been very countercultural in that society. These women were in ministry side by side with the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine the conversation in heaven? Everybody's sitting in a circle reminiscing about life back on the old earth. What kind of ministry did you do in the old world? Well, I did campus ministry. Someone else says, well, I did street evangelism. Someone else says, I did Christian hip-hop. And then it gets to Eodia. Sister Eo, what did you do back in the old world? Oh, not much. I just labored side by side with the Apostle Paul. That's all. Not much. They were working with Paul. They received his teaching. They observed his example. They participated in his ministry, and yet it's not all roses. These sisters were beefing with each other. Why is that? Well, the short answer is because of sin. Being a Christian does not exempt you from the conflict that comes from 
sin and being in ministry does not exempt you either. In fact, the closer the relationship, the more likely you'll see conflict. Anybody who's ever been married or grew up with siblings or had a roommate can testify to that. And I don't need to be in in person with you to hear the amens. Now, I know that this happened 2,000 years ago, but it's just as true now as it was then. Don't let the Greek names fool you. If the Apostle Paul had written this today, he could have just as easily said Michelle and Tiffany or Patrice and Kelly or Diane and Keisha agree in the Lord. It's really interesting what Paul does not say to the women. He doesn't say, hey, Eodia, why did you do that to Syntyche? Or Syntyche, why did you do that to Eodia? He doesn't even refer to the actual issue at all. He simply addresses them both, begging them to agree. And that phrase translated agree in the Lord, it uses the same words found in chapter 2. And I actually want us to turn back to chapter 2. Flip over a page to Philippians 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also in the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul goes into the beautiful, (laughs) classic description of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in humbling himself. But the words in Philippians 4, agree in the Lord, it uses the words found in in verse 2 of chapter 2, have the same mind, as well as in verse 5 of chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves. So what we're seeing in Philippians 4 verses 2 and 3 is really just Philippians 2, 1 to 5, fleshed out in a particular situation in the church. So the apostle Paul is going after the hearts of these women here. I guarantee you that no matter what the issue was between them, if they both had the mindset of affection and sympathy, of being of the same mind and in humility counting the other as more significant than themselves, the issue, whatever it was, it would have been resolved immediately. So if you look at the letter in this light, you get the sense that this is what the Apostle Paul has been building up to all along. He speaks generally in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and then specifically here. He is exhorting these sisters towards a heart posture that demonstrates a cross-centered perspective. Put another way, the Apostle Paul is simply telling these women to apply the gospel. So... Therefore, wherever you may land in the current debates over politics or ethnicity or race, I have an exhortation for you. And my exhortation is what I believe God was saying to Iodia and Syntyche. It's what I believe 
he was saying to Jew and Gentile throughout the New Testament, and I believe it's what he would say to Christians of all ethnicities today. And that is, labor to develop a spirit-cultivated affection and sympathy for the other. I'll say that again. Labor to develop a spirit-cultivated affection and sympathy for the other. Each word and phrase in that sentence is meaningful, and so let's look at them one by one. First, labor. We must labor because it's not something that just naturally happens. We tend naturally to gravitate towards those that we perceive to be most like us, whether that be ethnically, politically, or theologically. It takes intentionality and effort to move in love towards people outside of our natural spheres. It's labor. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take time. It's going to take sacrifice for us to pursue the kind of unity that God requires of us. Labor. The second phrase is spirit cultivated. Spirit cultivated. That's meaningful because genuine affection and sympathy for people that we don't connect with on some natural level that must be wrought by the spirit of God. If there's any kind of debate or battle or contest between two people with the winner being decided by a vote, determining the winner is generally predictable by answering a simple question. Who do the voters most identify with? When we identify with someone, we don't have to work as hard to develop affection and sympathy for them. But to do that for those that we're naturally inclined to disregard, ignore, or even despise, that must come from the Holy Spirit. The next phrase is affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. And I chose these two words in particular because they're found in the text we just read in Philippians chapter 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Let's look at each word first. Affection. Affection is important because affection serves as the fuel that can help us to continually lean into relationships even when it's hard. The Apostle Paul clearly had an affection for the church at Philippi. Notice how he talks about them in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He could have simply said, stand firm in the Lord. But he's pouring it on here because his affection is deep for them. And this is after he's already told them in chapter 1, verse 7, that he holds them in his heart. And in chapter 1, verse 8, that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's nothing distant or aloof about Paul's feelings towards these believers. His love and affection for them is evident. Where is this affection between Christians who disagree with one another on politics or ethnicity? Where is this affection on social media. Do you see it? Is it not the case that we're more likely to see pejorative labels 
name-calling and distortions of the viewpoints of those with whom we disagree. It's far easier to dismiss someone as a racist than it is to love them enough to consider their genuine concerns. It takes far less effort to write someone off as a Marxist than it does to pray from the heart that God would comfort them in their grief, even if we can't understand it. May we as the church be so filled with the Spirit that onlookers would be able to discern the mutual affection that we have for one another, even when we disagree. Sympathy. Sympathy. Sympathy is meaningful because mutual understanding is impossible without it. The word translated sympathy in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 is only used five times in the New Testament. And two of those times is referring to God himself. I'm a firm believer that sympathy is one of the primary keys to ethnic unity in the American church. And the reason for this, is, I think part of it, is that the, the divide between black and white Christians in particular is often due to a lack of shared experience. There's a connection between sympathy and proximity. It's much more difficult to sympathize or develop deep affection from a distance. Affection and sympathy are best cultivated within the context of real-life relationships. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges of this pandemic, is that we haven't been able to actually be around each other. And I think that's actually helped to increase the divide. We have a younger uh, white couple in uh, our church, and my wife and I, we meet with them regularly, and they become dear friends. And uh, right, so right now, our church is about, about half black, about 35% white, and about 10% Asian and Latino. And, and so the wife, she grew up in an urban area in a large city in the Northeast. And so for her, multi-ethnic interaction, that was just a regular part of her life growing up. But the husband, he grew up in a, an extremely rural area in the Midwest that was almost all white. And so he rarely, if ever, interacted with black people. And so he recently shared with us that when he first came to our church, he didn't realize just how much his worldview had been shaped by his upbringing. And it's only as he entered into in-depth relationships with people from other backgrounds that his perspective has changed on a number of different issues. So we've done life together. I helped this couple move into their first apartment when they moved to Philly. They've been in our home and babysat our kids while my wife and I have gone out on date nights. We've shared meals together. We've prayed and worshiped the Lord together. We've counseled them through various trials they've had as a younger married couple. The husband and I, we've had in-depth relationships about, uh, I'm sorry, in-depth conversations about, about family, about finances, and about the future. Blair and the wife, they've shared their hearts with one another. We spoke openly about hard topics like race and politics. In other words, we've done life together. And so now, when an unarmed black man is killed by the police, this couple has a different perspective than what they might have had when they first came to the church. 
It doesn't mean that the conclusions they draw about a particular case might necessarily be different, but it does mean that when they think of black men, it's not theoretical to them. Their first thought is not a news report or statistics on a website. They have particular people that they know and love in mind. That makes a difference. They're able to sympathize in a way that they wouldn't be able to in the same way had there not been the same proximity. You know, when we think about the one another's of the New Testament, they assume that we're in each other's lives enough to walk them out. Just consider some, some of the things that the church is commanded to do. We're called to welcome one another, Romans 15, 7. We're called to encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. We're called to be devoted to one another, Romans 12, 10. We're called to build up one another, Romans 14, 19. We're called to admonish one another, Colossians 3, 16. We're called to comfort one another, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. We're called to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. We're called to bear with one another, Ephesians 4, 2. We're called to confess our faults to one another, James 5, 16. We're called to forgive one another, Ephesians 4, 32. We're called to show hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4, 9. The best way to live these out is by being in, pros, in close proximity with each other. As we seek to love, love each other and, and we have to find creative ways in during this pandemic. But as we seek to walk this out, the spirit works in our hearts to produce affection and sympathy for our brothers and sisters from different ethnic backgrounds. This battle is not going to be won on Facebook. <laughs> it's not. We're not going to solve this issue. We're hundreds of years deep <laughs> into this issue. It's not going to be solved by a Twitter post. No, we're gonna, it's going to be addressed as we're in each other's lives, as we seek to, to listen to one another, to learn from one another, to humble ourselves before the Lord and before each other. It brings us to the last word, which is other. Other. Now, other could mean a number of different things. It could be ethnically other. It could be socioeconomically other, culturally other, or politically other. Other, But what I mean is by other is people that we wouldn't necessarily choose as our friends, at least not our first choice, not out of any hatred or ill will towards them. But because, like I mentioned earlier, we naturally gravitate towards those who are most like us. And so when we pursue the other in love, what we'll find is that if we're talking about believers here, what we'll find is that what we have in common is far greater than anything that separates us. Did you notice how the Apostle Paul reminded these ladies about what unites them? Look at verse three. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Iodia and Sensiki needed to be reminded that despite whatever was causing their disagreement, they're going to be spending eternity together. Our temptation in the midst of conflict is to highlight our differences 
and to highlight what separates us. But the Apostle Paul was having none of that. Despite our differences, all Christians share in the same heavenly father, the same savior, the same spirit, the same faith, the same hope, the same universal church, the same covenant, the same promises and the same destiny. Those things are more essential to our being than our ethnicity, our cultural background or our political party. Let us remember this when we're tempted to otherize Christians that we disagree with. And so when it comes to affection and sympathy for the other, as always, the Lord Jesus outshines all in his perfect example. What better model do we have of this than the Lord Jesus himself? Brothers and sisters at Risen Hope, I want to say that we are more other. We were more other to Jesus than any of us are to each other. And this is the case because of his holy divinity. As the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is the only son of God, begotten from the father before all ages, God from God light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Before the incarnation, it gets no more other than we were to Jesus. Not only because we're creatures and he's the creator, but more fundamentally because we're sinful creatures and he's holy, holy, holy. And yet, out of his infinite treasures of affection and sympathy, He literally entered into our world. He entered into our humanity. He entered into our suffering. It was his affection and sympathy that caused him to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead to empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was his affection and sympathy that caused him to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And after his victorious resurrection, the Lord Jesus remains our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, may we have this same mind among ourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, would you forgive us for the ways that we have contributed to the division that is so prevalent in the church. And Lord, would you help us to labor, to develop spirit-cultivated affection and sympathy for the other. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is our perfect example, but he's even more than an example. He's our sin bearer. He's the one who died 
for us for the times that we don't get it right in this area. And so help us to be rooted in Christ, to be rooted in the gospel, and to pursue each other in love for the glory of your name. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.